and so I think a successful product in the space should probably be tapping into something like that, where it's not just, hey, it's decentralized, but it's also building on the rest of what makes crypto great. So I think a project that, that does something like that well could actually be probably the next source of user growth. Hi, everyone. This is Growing Web 3, a podcast that uncovers the growth stories behind the most successful crypto, DeFi, DAO, NFT, Metaverse, and play-to-earn ecosystems. I'm your host, James RT, and each week I'll be sitting down with founders and experts on Web3 to pick their brains and learn about their growth stories. We'll discuss strategies and tactics to understand how they've grown Web3's billion-dollar protocols and communities. So whether you're in the midst of your own growth story or just getting started, this show is for you. Subscribe and join us each week as we discuss Growing Web3. Growing Web3 is brought to you by Hype Partners, the leading community management and marketing agency for Web3 organizations. Hype is a global agency of 120 marketers committed to supercharging Web3 ecosystems. Go to www.hype.partners to learn more. Hey everyone, welcome to Growing Web3. Today with us, I have Tom Schmidt. He is a partner at Dragonfly Capital. Great to have you on the show. Yeah, maybe we could kick off. You could give a little introduction to everyone listening. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm a partner at Dragonfly Capital. We're a global crypto venture fund. Been here for about two years. And before Dragonfly, I used to lead product at 0x. They're one of the largest decentralized exchanges. If people are familiar with 0x API or Matcha, worked on some of those products. And then before that, I was a product manager at Instagram for about three years, sort of doing in general, consumer tech. And then before that, uh, I did CS uh, undergrad. So sort of that's kind of where I got into, into crypto. Dragonfly, they're investing in kind of like a wide range of protocols, right? And decentralized technologies. Is that kind of a focus area or is it just very much a broad kind of scope? We only do crypto. Maybe some context for, for folks out, out there. So Dragonfly started life as a fund of funds when it was started in 2018. So we would invest in other funds and we pivoted in doing direct investments only starting in, in 2019. And so we're a little bit different than a lot of other funds in the space, which are structured more as, as hedge funds where they're, you know, buying and selling tokens and you're know, trying to trade. For us, you know, when we do an investment, we have a you know, five plus year holding period. So really our model is we invest in the really early stages. We work really closely with founders. We help them on product, design, data, go-to-market hiring, all that kind of stuff. Um, just given that everyone on the team previously used to work in the crypto industry and for the most part is, is technical. And so, you know, we like to get you know, hands-on with, with founders in the early stages. And we're sort of that, that long fun life lets us be pretty agnostic around the types of investments that we do. So we invest in early stage protocols. We invest in CFI companies. We invest in, you know, data companies like Dune Analytics. Sometimes we'll buy NFTs. Sometimes we'll buy stuff on the open market or we'll contribute into, into DAOs. You know, we really don't have a specific limitations on, on the, what we invest in. It's really just like, hey, who are the best founders who are building the most, you know, generational projects in the space? Awesome. Awesome. What kind of things do you look for in teams like around their go-to-market strategy? Is that like important or are you like kind of really focused on the technology? No, I think we very much care about go-to-market. Oftentimes for a lot of projects in a lot of categories, uh, they can often be somewhat winner take all and Oftentimes, the market is choosing more on you know, narrative and momentum more so than, than pure tech. Oracles is, is a good example where you know, I think Chainlink is like a fine Oracle system, maybe not the most technically sophisticated, but in, in reality, you know, it was sort of good enough to get momentum and sort of become the, the market leader. Oftentimes, we're also looking at 
this concept of, of founder market fit. So do you have the network? Do you have the background? Do you have sort of the experience to break into a maybe specific niche or specific space versus somebody sort of showing up out of the blue and wanting to go work on something very esoteric? So go-to-market is super important. And I think also when we're doing investment rounds, we try to be pretty collaborative and try to bring in other strategics who can sort of partner with the, the team that we're you know, investing in. So, you know, if it's a wallet, maybe, you know, partnering with people who might want to, you know, integrate with you or people who might want to you know, adopt you, or if it's like a lending protocol, it's like, okay, maybe integrate with, you know, some of these treasury managers that are going to be, you're depositing into you and, and sort of, you know, building up a network that way. Yeah, absolutely. I remember like they kind of brute forced their way to growth, I think through the bear market, like their community just was just relentless. But it's kind of amazing. Like it really showed like memes that can drive, yeah, drive narratives and yeah, it drove them up like coin market cap and yeah, that was it. They weren't going anywhere after that. And then they had like their base to just build out everything else on top of that. Yeah, it, it's sort of like good enough, right? It's hey, I'm I'm a founder. Am I gonna choose some, you know, brand new Oracle system that's sort of untested, that doesn't have the wide support, that does it have the you know, the brand of, of Chainlink? Or am I just going to use Chainlink? And I think oftentimes that that tends to be the answer, even if you know the market winner isn't the most technically optimal or or you know superior product. And so that you know go to market and, and speed matters a lot. You kind of touched on it. What kind of things do you do to help founders like really get hands on with growth? So you mentioned you make introductions. Kind of do you help with their strategies as well? Yeah, we tend to go really deep. It depends on the founder, but for for seed stage stuff, you know, we're meeting with them, you know, every other week. Working on strategy, you know, working on on product, working on design. We have a head of talent who is formerly at Zero X who helps teams with their hiring strategy and sourcing. We sort of send out really good you know candidates to the to the team. We have a GC who helps teams think about legal strategy as well. We bring on a few more folks, but it's even even more basic stuff too. It's like, hey, if you're you know, want to do a press outreach thing, we can help you with that. If you want a quick Dune dashboard, you know, I can help you with that. It's a lot of like really basic stuff. Super cool. I was part of the the ribbon community kind of early on the hangout in the discord i think you were there as well there were like loads of pretty cool people hanging out i think they're yeah they i think they really nailed that early community strategy do you have like yeah some thoughts around what you think went well there what they did better than other founders yeah I, i've been reflecting on that a little bit recently too i mean i think part of it is you know attracting kind of options nerds, but in, in a way that makes it sort of onboardable or, or, or palatable. And I think, you know, Julian and Ken have also just done a great job with you know, having the right kind of discourse and the right kind of vibe within the community in the early days too. But I think what was also cool about it is it was not incentivized. It was not monetarily incentivized in the early days. It was just people showing up who thought it, who that was really cool. And I think that lets you as a founder really you know, verify that you have product market fit, that you have a community. I think a lot of, you know, quote unquote communities are in reality people who are there because the price has gone up or because they they're getting you know compensated through liquidity mining or something but by by just sort of launching something raw you can see if you have organic product market fit i think that naturally sort of makes things a bit stickier and a bit stronger so i think they did a really good job with how they thought about the token distribution and just like staging of the, of the product so um and obviously the product is, is killer they're sort of really defined they invented this whole category of decentralized options vaults the design is fantastic they also really nailed you know the product as well yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's it's like a tough challenge. Like everyone asks, how do I build a community? I'm like, well, just find like 50 people, like reach out manually, like the classic do things don't like scale, just get them in the, like get them in a Discord and get chatting. If there's interesting conversations, 
and people are engaged, that's like half the battle, right? Yeah, I think from there, then you've just got to like try and figure out how to scale it. And usually like through Twitter, that's kind of not too difficult. But yeah, it was a super cool community to be involved with early on. The Ribbonati is still you know somewhat influential and I think they're still doing deals. And yeah, I think Ribbon still has a yeah, amazing hold on on design and, and brand and product and they're really just, you know, outshipping everybody else. And I think that it's a testament to the power of, of having a strong early community. What do you see in like founders early on? Like what kind of things don't they get about like go to market growth, community strategies? Like and what things do you think they could get better at? A, a lot of founders, I think, come at product with an approach of you know, kind of build it and they will come. Um, obviously that that's that's you know wrong. You need to be somewhat aggressive about marketing your, your product or thinking specifically about how you're going to get people to use it, who those first 100 users are going to be, what kind of experience they're going to have. Like, are you going to have a, a cold start problem or is there a great kind of single player experience when people show up to use their, your product? But I think broadly speaking, you know, probably the main thing I, I see is founders not having a clear sense of narrative. Oftentimes they're trying to do too many things or the narrative is kind of esoteric or niche or, or too vague. And I think what you want to do is create a meme around your product, not like an image meme, but like a narrative meme. So people think, oh, yeah, Ribbon, cool, like Theta Gang, you know, we're, we're selling selling options and it's sort of this whole yeah, meme around around the options vaults. And you know, sustainable yield is, is sort of the other thing that they've, they've sort of coined. So really, it's sort of about like refining your product, thinking like, what is like the one thing that we need to, to, to drive home? If it's a um, narrative, if it's a metric, if it's a, you know, entry point into the product, and then just sort of greasing the skids to make that happen. So making it super easy to onboard users, looking sort of up funnel and thinking about where you're going to get new flows from Xerox API, for example, more than half the volume is, is coming not from Matcha, but it's coming from a lot of these other sources. So you sort of have this, this you know, evergreen network of, of people who are using the, the product in addition to just this, this single you know, Matcha product being a good example of, of how to sort of think about getting new flows and, and think about onboarding new users onto the product beyond just sort of shipping it and you know, helping people find it on Twitter. I've been thinking about this like meme narrative and this push like and w- like why is it so important in crypto and it feels like it's things are pretty complex and there are so many new products that when someone has like a really strong narrative and can like succinctly explain what they do in like five words it's really easy to share and spread and i think like yeah defi has done that pretty well like a lot of top defi products it's kind of getting more difficult with like NFT projects and gaming projects. They're obviously growing super fast. So I'm wondering how, yeah, how they're being successful. I guess they're more visual, right? So it's easy to spread. Yeah, I think NFTs are kind of a lot more like fashion where people have maybe have their own taste, but people also look to tastemakers and oftentimes there's a lot of subjectivity around it. I think you could say certain things are objective, like, oh, it's, you know, done on chain or the code is beautiful or, you know, there, there's some other element about the way that the project is done that makes it attractive. Like, you know, CryptoPunks being given out for free is sort of the OG. Okay, that's like an objective fact about the product. But a lot of it is subjective and sort of narrative forming, right? I think a lot of people think of, you know, CryptoPunks as like being like Bitcoin, but you know, that's not inherently a thing. That was just a narrative that somebody, you know, came up with. And then I think other people in the community have sort of followed it and people look to, you know, what other folks are doing to sort of come up with their own opinions, right? Like when we're thinking about, again, fashion, it's not, there's some objective truths about maybe the quality of the clothing or or the brand or where it's made, but a lot of it is just, you know, sort of this mimetic desire 
certainly there's a component to that, but also just, I think people, you know, again, have their own sort of personal taste. Yeah, absolutely. And like this, this air of like exclusivity as well with like Bored Apes kind of nailed that pretty well. I feel like their narrative right now is just have every celebrity own a Bored Ape. And I mean, that's a, probably the best go-to-market strategy I think someone can have or a project can have. So I've been kind of impressed, constantly impressed by how relentlessly they've like driven that, <laughs> driven that, that strategy home. I agree. I mean, certainly they're not the first, you know, 10K PFP project. But I think in reality, I think it's, it's partnering with a lot of these, these artist agencies to sort of promote board apes within their, within their clients. But then it becomes, hey, now you have, you know, board apes on Jimmy Fallon and you have celebrities talking about board apes. And then, it, you know, oftentimes that's the way sort of, you know, luxury brands manifest is just by, you know, people looking at, at famous wealthy people and sort of, again, stimulating that mimetic desire. At the moment, are you... Are you working a lot with gaming companies? I know Dragonfly has invested a lot in like the top layer one protocols, a lot of the top DeFi protocols as well. Have you been working with play to earn ecosystems and NFT ecosystems as well? Yeah. You know, generally speaking, we are a little bit more conservative around some of the play to earn projects. I think some of the projects that I see getting investment or the way I see getting promoted, I'm very wary of because I think they actually tend to be not very good games and almost all the momentum is sort of driven by the, the play to earn component. And you can think of it again, very similar to DeFi where you can see, you know, oftentimes it's like a very good natural experiment where you'll have a team that has a product that has some very small amount of you know, organic traction and then they turn liquidity mining and TVL goes up, you know, 20 X and they're like, Oh, look at our attraction. And you can very clearly see, you know, what's, what's being paid for and what's not and how much revenue they're, they're also generating for the payment. So we have done a few play to earn games, but for the most part, it's teams that have previously built, you know, great gaming titles. You know, they have a really, really sensible approach as to like, you know, why play to earn makes sense or why integrating some sort of crypto component into their product makes sense versus just, hey, we're already working on this thing. Let's slap it on a blockchain and, and call it a day. So we both believe that the team can deliver a great game that, you know, everybody at Dragonfly wants to play and we think other people want to play. But it's also like the, the crypto component is being really thoughtful. We've also invested in a few sort of infrastructure type type projects. Open Guild being being one of them. It's sort of like a platform for you know, building guilds, and and I think that makes sense. Where you know, independent of the actual game, I think there will always probably be some sort of you know, player component, and this is just sort of providing core infrastructure for guilds that want to participate in that ecosystem. So I think we occasionally take sort of you know, infrastructure type bets that are a little bit more indexed and a little bit you know, sort of game agnostic. Yeah, it feels like infrastructure projects, like their go-to-market strategy is very much around like BD. They have to really draw, have someone like who's really phenomenal at just networking, like getting the most value out of investors. We kind of, I don't know if it's doing the conference side, we're just basically just, yeah, getting on calls and just smashing kind of a sales type of strategy. Like, yeah, play to earn games. I feel like it's, it's really like something that can be done, like growth can be done like in a more traditional digital marketing web two way, which is like, yeah, you can run ads, you can do huge campaigns. There's still like a huge community element, but yeah, I think the growth, the growth strategy there is very much like, let's just, yeah, let's just get as many people playing this as possible as soon as we can and go pretty big. Yeah. I definitely agree with that. I think that tends to be kind of what we see in the market. If you're going to join a team today, as their like CMO, head of growth or head of product even, which one would you go for? 
obviously I'm very biased and I think, you know, all the Dragonfly port codes are, are really excellent. But one that's kind of, I guess, stood out to me recently is, is Gem. They're the NFT exchange aggregator. We led their seed round. And I think that the team from like an engineering and design standpoint, just 10 out of 10, like Vasa is a, is a total boss and the product's incredible. And I think increasingly we see it becoming the preferred choice for people to buy and sell NFTs. And I think there's just so much room to run in the NFT ecosystem, especially for this, this product, which is really kind of defined a category that I, I get I get really excited about, you know, building a narrative around Gem and, and you know, already been helping them with some of their, their growth ideas. And it seems like it's a, it's a good fit. So I think doing something in the NFT space seems really exciting to me, even though a lot of my background is in, is in DeFi. I think if I had to do something in DeFi, Alchemia comes to mind. It's another one of our portfolio companies. They're sort of doing like basically on-chain mining derivatives, but more broadly speaking, you could think of it as sort of like a fungible marketplace for block space. And I think it's like this brand new primitive in DeFi that we haven't we haven't really seen yet. That I think is just going to sort of change the game in terms of how it can be composed with other types of assets to you know create new yield opportunities, create new hedging opportunities, just to create this whole ecosystem uh, sort of around it. So I think that's really cool. And again, the team is like 10 out of 10 and, and they're just so perfect for, for what they're doing. Super cool. Super cool. I think Gem is a phenomenal product. I guess it's like, is it the Fed says like 0x of NFTs or is it, it's like, it's more of an aggregator, right? More of an aggregator. It's more of like the one inch of NFTs. I guess 0x is obviously now doing ag- aggregation. So very similar, but yeah, it's, you can see, you know, NFTs across all the different marketplaces. You can bulk buy, so you can you know, floor sweep and buy five NFTs in one transaction. And they've actually done a lot of gas optimization on their contracts. So it's actually cheaper than buying at OpenSea directly. So you save like 39% on your gas fees. So you know, if you're buying a bunch of NFTs, it's a few hundred dollars that you're saving, which is pretty cool. And the UI is beautiful. They've done a great job with the design. So Yeah, I so saw they, they said on Twitter recently, like they're going to have like some crazy sweep the floor option. I'm looking forward, looking forward to seeing that and the, the havoc it will wreck on, wreak on the market. Yeah, it should be fun. Where do you see like user growth over the next few years? Like say in three years, where do you see like the most, like which, which kind of sector of the industry do you think will have the most users like DeFi, NFTs or play to earn? I guess play to earn NFTs are kind of, there's a crossover there. Yeah, where do you think like most of the, the user growth will come from? I mean, I think if you just look at sort of web two comps, gaming seems to be you know the largest player, probably the most, the most likely to sort of you know take off. I think one thing I've, I've kind of been surprised by, I guess, is initially I was I was pretty bought into this CDFI thesis, which has been somewhat popular in Asia, where you have centralized exchanges or centralized you know CFI products that basically offer DeFi under the hood to their users. So you know, the user accounts aren't actually reflected in DeFi because it's, hey, I'm depositing into OKX and then they're depositing into Compound for me. Just anecdotally, having seen some of their numbers, you know, th- those are driving a large number of the deposits into DeFi. And it's sort of offering the best of both worlds in theory where you're getting you know, DeFi products and you're getting DeFi yields, but you don't have to worry with the about the weirdness of dealing with MetaMask and managing your private key, which I think a lot of people are going to be wary about. I think in, in practice, we've actually seen a lot of warming up to the idea of having your own wallet and, and using MetaMask. And like a lot of seem just so many people use these services and you know things like OpenSea just natively as opposed to going through sort of a proxy. So I don't know if that's going to continue, but certainly that's a trend that I would not have expected. And, and I think that's been pretty, pretty impressive to see. One area that I'm maybe a bit more skeptical of in terms of user growth is like the decentralized social space. I think for the most part, when we see teams building, oftentimes there's 
it feels like the main value prop is that it's decentralized and it's censorship resistant, which I think is, is sort of a tail risk thing for the majority of users. You know, 99.9999% of users will never experience censorship. And so in reality, you have sort of a you have version of Twitter that doesn't have content, doesn't have your social network, you know, it doesn't have good ranking, doesn't have good UX. So it's like, but, you know, you can kind of post whatever you want, which is also kind of a double-edged sword. And so I think there's there's potentially room for decentralized social products in the future, but they need to be a little bit smarter about how they think about sort of overcoming that activation energy and, and building a, a critical mass of users to make this thing viable and maybe even tapping into what's happening in, in the rest of crypto a little bit more. I, I think, you know, DSO or, or BitClout, I, I don't, yeah, I think screw up a lot of things with its, with its you know, product and go-to-market and things that we're, we're not investors, things that I, I disagree with, but I think they did nail this idea correctly around sort of having creator tokens and allowing people to, you know, sort of tap into what made DeFi interesting, but allow people to speculate on, you know, products or accounts or, and, and help those, those creators and those accounts monetize as well. And so I think a successful product in the space should probably be tapping into something like that, where it's not just, hey, it's decentralized, but it's also building on the rest of what makes crypto great. So I think a project that, that does something like that well could actually be probably the next source of user growth. That's super cool. Yeah, I was like surprised at how aggressive DSO were, but then it kind of made sense because I'm like, if they're not that aggressive, they're just going nowhere. Like no one would care. I think the only way they could capture any attention was by pissing people off just to get their attention and make them act. And they did. And yeah, I wouldn't ever recommend that strategy to anyone, but it kickstarted something. It's true. I mean, there's a lot of components that I think, you know, piss people off. The, the creator token, you know, drop aside, I think it was also just the tech choices and the, the whole seed phrase, Google Drive thing. And, and it was, there was a lot of weirdness around it, but you're absolutely right. Everything I mean, they showed in the initial days that like, hey, if you, they had the right components to get a flywheel going, if not sustain it fully. It's phenomenally hard to like start any social network. Remember there was one like a long time ago like, called Hello or Hello or something. It was like a Facebook competitor. And it did well for like three or four days. And that was it. It's like old news. To get any further than that and yeah, bridge people across is just phenomenally hard. Yeah, I think it could be a few years away, but it's an interesting one. I would not be surprised if, if we see something that you know develops a new type of media or really taps into what makes you know crypto more interesting beyond sort of the censorship resistance, um, which I think is what we've seen be successful in DeFi, right? Like people aren't using compound necessarily because they can't get access to you know yield products elsewhere but it's just like oh it's an it's a novel experience or because they're worried about you know their their bank shutting on their account but it's actually just a novel experience that provides a, a better experience than what they can get elsewhere it has this, this knock-on benefit of being you know self-custodied and being censorship resistant so i think it has to be sort of a an addition as opposed to being the full meal absolutely awesome thank you so much that was super cool to hear all your views yeah speak very soon Cool. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Growing Web 3. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at hypepartners forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening again, and be sure to hit subscribe to listen to new episodes first. Growing Web 3 is brought to you by Hype Partners, the leading community management and marketing agency for Web 3 organizations. Hype is a global agency of 120 marketers committed to supercharging Web 3 ecosystems. Go to www.hype.partners to learn more.